Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. The prolific writer Nat Segaloff is back with us. His brand new book takes a look at director and producer Otto Preminger and his fight with Hollywood's code, which affected so much of the content of Hollywood's pictures from its golden era. The title of Nat's book is Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors. Uh, thanks so much, Nat, for joining us to talk about Preminger. Well, thanks for letting me back in the door, Larry. <laughs> so let's start first with, with what the Hollywood code was all about. What sorts of things did it refuse to, um, to provide approval for? or when they showed up in movies. The Hollywood Production Code actually began in 1927 as a result of cries for censorship all over the country. The then organizing, the trade organizing group of the motion picture industry was the MPPDA, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, headed by Will Hayes, who was very famous for looking like he just walked out of a Grant Wood painting. But the moguls were so afraid of censorship for all the Hollywood scandals of the 1920s that they created the trade organization and they also created the production code. And the production code was a list of don'ts and be carefuls of things that you shouldn't do or shouldn't even come close to doing or else you might raise the hackles of local censors all over the country. It was a very, very big problem. And to forestall censorship on the local levels, the industry censored itself. Well, and, and I think this gave many of us the sense that our, our our parents and grandparents' generations really didn't have sex and was, you know, was this very cleaned up sort of image. When in fact, when you look at the pre-code films, there's nudity, there's prostitution, there's uh, extramarital affairs. There are all sorts of things that we saw in films starting in the 70s once the code broke down. They were there in the pre-code era. Well, that's something that people need to distinguish. You see, the code started in 1927, but nobody really paid attention to it until 1934. So when they say pre-code films, they were during the code, but it was before code enforcement. In fact, in March of 1934, one of Hayes' appointees, Joseph Ignatius Breen, or Joe Breen, took over the production code administration and decreed that every film released henceforth would have a code seal. And the code seal is what cleaned up Hollywood. Before then, a lot of movies were, just as you described, <laughs> fairly interesting. Uh, Nat, let's talk about then Otto Preminger and how he rises to be an important director, never an Oscar winner, but several of his films in the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. They include the wonderful noir from 1944, Laura, with a great theme song in addition to a, a terrific film, Carmen Jones from 1944, 
Ford, the man with the golden arm, Frank Sinatra, heroin addiction at the center of this, Porgy and Bess from 59, another great musical, and Anatomy of a Murder, also from 1959. This is a film, in fact, we want to play a selection from Anatomy of a Murder because uh, this movie is uh, quite explicit in what it deals with, with the trial involving a rape in this clip uh, from 1959, the courtroom drama. We hear the judge uh, and uh, we hear what was described by the production code administration of vulgar expressions in the courtroom scene. For the benefit of the jury, but more especially for the spectators, the undergarment referred to in the testimony was, to be exact, Mrs. Mannion's panties. <laughs> I wanted you to get your snickering over and done with. This pair of panties will be mentioned again in the course of this trial. And when it happens, there will not be one laugh, one snicker, one giggle, or even one smirk in my courtroom. There isn't anything comic about a pair of panties which figure in the violent death of one man and the possible incarceration of another. We're talking about Anatomy of a Murder, just an absolutely superb film, Matt. It is, and if that voice sounded familiar, the man playing the judge was Joseph N. Welsh, who was the lawyer who was defending the Army during the Army-McCarthy hearings just before this film was made. He was the man who took down Joe McCarthy by saying, at long last, sir, have you no sense of decency? And that same cadence and that same authority are present in Anatomy of a Murder. It's also a great example of producer Otto Preminger's brilliant in stunt casting. Yeah, and so share with us the cast of the film and how it was so powerful. Well, you had George C. Scott in an early role. You had James Stewart. Uh, you had Lee Remick, um, Ben Gazzara. Who gives a great but Lee Remick oh, is dynamite. She was so underrated. I mean, she just did incredible work. Uh, it was a courtroom drama adapted by Wendell Mays, and it's just riveting, every single bit of it, and Preminger keeps it moving. Uh, there's nothing else I can say if you can find it. In fact, it may even turn up on YouTube. You, you just don't want to leave the room when it's on because everything works so perfectly and it twists and turns. That's one of the th But the production code was so afraid of the vulgarisms that they wanted to cut it. And Preminger went to bat by saying, well, these are words that would be used in a court of law. Therefore, they should be able to be used in a motion picture. He produced the films, as you mentioned, many cases, and that gave him the latitude to be the decision maker, you know, as well as as the director, what led him? To, I mean, was there was there a certain promotional aspect of these battles too? That, or was it these were these statements of conscience alone on his part? Otto Preminger was a complicated man. I worked for him a couple of times back oh, in really? the day. One of the things that he happened probably had the you, scars to show for it. You have no idea. <laughs> When you're as old as I am, you wind up keeping notes with everybody that you've worked with, and that's what's been fueling some of my books. I'll tell the other auto stories later. But he was uh, first a, a progressive, a very smart man, a litigator. He went to law school in, in Austria. And at the same time, he was a complete egomaniac and demanded everything done his way. In fact, writer-director Burt Kennedy when they were talking about possessive credits on movies, once joked, I passed Otto Preminger's house last night, or is it a house by Otto Preminger? <laughs> <laughs> the Otto Preminger stories are rife. You know, he made the, uh, the movie Exodus in 1960 about Israel's independence, and it's a long movie. And during the premiere, Mort Saul, who was a fellow Jew, stood up and said, Otto, let my people go. <laughs> so <laughs> that's guy. the kind of man Otto Preminger was. But he didn't like to be 
He didn't like to have his hands tied. And so when it came to a movie that he had made from a play that he had directed called The Moon is Blue, the play was done as a success on Broadway in 1951, and he made the movie of it in 1953. He, of course, ritually submitted the script to Joseph Breen of the Breen office, and Breen said, you can't make this movie. Preminger said, why? It's the story of a young woman, played by Maggie McNamara in the movie, between David Niven and uh, 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 right, uh, William Holden, who is romanced by both men and wants to keep her virginity. That's it. It's a sex comedy without any sex. And the code says, well, you, you can't use the word virgin, for one thing, and you can't make light of sex. And Preminger was saying, but, but you're having all of these, these serious pictures about love and romance and, and relationships, but you can't, you can't make fun of it. And Breen said, no, you can't make fun of sex and you can't use the word virgin. Well, let's hear what actually hit the screen. This is 1953, The Moon is Blue, romantic comedy directed and produced by Otto Preminger, William Holden, David Niven, and Maggie McNamara. Pardon me, lady, but what makes you trust him so implicitly? I guess it sounds kind of corny, but I think he's a man of honor. A girl can tell. I got three daughters. I only hope they can tell, too. I'm so glad you don't mind. Mind what? Well, men are usually so bored with virgins. I'm so glad you're not. So we made it into the film, but without the seal? Well, that's the whole thing. You see, Otto Preminger was working with United Artists at the time, and United Artists, Arthur Quim and Robert Benjamin, were very progressive as well. And uh, when the film was denied a code seal, uh, Preminger and United Artists said, we'll release it without a code seal, and we'll resign from the Motion Picture Association for the duration of the release which, of course, pinned the Motion Picture Association because if the film was a success, it would have been a crack in their veneer. But if it was a failure, of course, they would have been proven right. Well, the film was a huge success. It cost $300,000. It grossed over $6 million. And the code began to crumble. And same with Anatomy of a Murder, right? Became a huge box office success. Preminger did four films in a row that just broke the code. The one he did after... The Moon is Blue was Man with the Golden Arm with Frank Sinatra in Nelson Algren's novel about heroin addiction. Well, this was an interesting schism between the Legion of Decency, which was the Catholic office for motion pictures, and the Motion Picture Association that had just been facing this. And that is that drug addiction was absolutely prohibited by the production code. Even if you made a movie damning drug addiction. You couldn't do it. But at the same time, the Legion of Decency realized what a problem drug addiction was, and they approved the film. What's even more interesting is that, and this is not as esoteric as you might think, the production code had been written not by the Motion Picture Association, but by Martin Quigley, who was the publisher of an influential trade newspaper called the Motion Picture Herald, and Daniel Lord, Father Daniel Lord, who began the Legion of Decency the year before the production code took over and put in seals. So in a sense, the Catholic Office for Motion Pictures wrote the Hollywood production code, <laughs> and they're all there's the same kind of source because Joe Breed was very much uh, an Irishman, a Catholic. And so what you have is the assertion of the Catholic Church onto Hollywood, which venerates the old, the old saw that the motion picture industry is all about Jewish Hollywood telling Protestant America how to be more Catholic. That's <laughs> Film Week on LAS 89.3. Nat Segaloff joining us his book, Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors. We'll continue our conversation with him in just one minute. 
support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about the director and producer Otto Preminger, who made a number of notable films in the course of his multi-decade career. Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors is Nat Segaloff's new book. Uh, Nat, we should talk about how difficult Preminger was to work with. Who was it? Someone said he's the greatest, uh, you know, dinner companion and and the you know most awful director in the way that he treated people. Uh, Ivan the Monster, some or Otto the Monster, excuse me. Some people called him. Uh, Gene Seberg described on Joan of Arc just uh, terrible treatment. Why was he so rough on actors? Otto became more charming the farther away he got from cameras. I had some social encounters with him when I was a student, and then I was working with him as a publicist. And all I can tell you is a very short story. His executive assistant was Nat Rudick, or as we refer to him, poor Nat Rudick. (laughs) We were in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Boston. Otto was changing in the bedroom, and Nat had just come up from New York. And Otto would be rated if you should have bought some underwear. Go to Filene's basement and buy some underwear. So Nat Rudick and I are sitting and talking very softly in the living room. And all of a sudden, from the bedroom, Otto Premer just screams out, Nat! Both Nat Rudick and I jump. We didn't know which one he meant. <laughs> so that's one of the stories. You know, look, Otto was a good person and a bad man. Uh, he, I don't think he knew how to direct actors very well. I don't think he knew how to relate to them. Certainly what he put poor Liza Minnelli through when they were doing Tell Me That You Love Me, Junie Moon, practically turned her off of acting. He just would browbeat people, figuring, okay, you're the actor, you're supposed to come to the set. But he didn't communicate with them. And so my jury is still out about Otto Preminger as a director. I know many people venerate him. But the stories I've heard just turned me so much that it's very difficult for me to see him as the god that many people do. Did that make it then hard for people to want to come back and work with him in the future? Because he worked with a lot of talent. But who would want to come back and do it again? I can't explain what this was all about. People like John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, major stars work for him, and maybe he wouldn't push them around. Mm. But the newbies, you know, he might have had something to do about it. You know, the, the famous stories are that Billy Wilder, who had directed Otto Preminger in Starlight 17, once said, I have to be nice to Otto because I still have family in the old country, <laughs> which is a bitter thing to say because wow. Billy's mother and grandmother were killed by Hitler. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. but, but Otto uh, was not a Nazi, but he played them very often. But he was a very, very talented producer. I'll certainly give him that. And many times he rose to the challenge of directing brilliantly. He uh, he also came out of theater, didn't he? And as you said, as Max an Reinhardt, actor. Yeah, sure. Max he, Reinhardt. Yeah. yeah, and he he made his Broadway debut with Narrow Margin on the stage. And that's what brought him out to Hollywood. 
We're talking about Otto Preminger, Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors, Nat Sekulov's new book. Um, we're talking about uh, Preminger as a director and writer. Uh, let's talk about Laura because uh, it's one of my favorites. It's just a noir classic. And um, what do you see in his sensibility in, in that film? And he wasn't the original director. No, there, that's was the he? thing. Daryl Zanuck had assigned Ruben Mamoulian to direct Laura. And when Daryl Zanuck was off fighting the war, Otto Preminger fired Ruben Mamoulian and decided to reshoot everything that he'd done. With what authority, I don't know. But he had a very good script, terrific actors, and uh, something that, that totally eluded the production code at the time. Uh, it's, it's about necrophilia. Laura's, you know, man falls in love with a dead woman. That should have been prohibited by the code, but Otto's finesse and the brilliance of the film made it pass. He also had uh, films with all black cast. We mentioned Porky and Bass and, and Carmen Jones. Yes. And, yes. and what, what was it that drew him to that material? He was always interested in something dramatic, in something promotable as well. He, as far as anybody can tell, was not at all racially biased. He was, in fact, quite liberal in that regard, dated widely, and was just someone who, who knew what a good story was and, and who knew, uh, really, I think, what America was about in terms of equality and in terms of opportunity. Uh, as you look at his impact on it, where where do you place him in terms of breaking down the code? Obviously, there were a lot of factors that took place over the course of, of the you know, 60s uh, to, to cause this to happen. But how much was he responsible for that? Otto Premier was responsible for two very, very important things in the 1960s. One of them is breaking the code to the point where it just had to go away. And in, that's why when Joe Breen retired and Jeffrey Sherlock, who took over, retired and, and uh uh, Eric Johnston, who ran the code, uh, retired. Jack Valenti was brought in, and Jack realized that they had to liberalize it because the code in 35 years hadn't changed, and yet America, who had gone through World War II, had changed. The other thing we have to praise Otto for is Otto's the one who broke the blacklist. He was the one who hired Dalton Trumbo to write Exodus and said so, and it was only after Otto announced that he was hiring Dalton Trumbo for Exodus that Kirk Douglas admitted that Dalton Trumbo had written Spartacus, but Otto came first, and I have that from... And that was from, that was with a pseudonym for Spartacus, right? Well, it started that way, but he used his name. Oh, okay, when it that, came That's the okay. whole point. And in fact, Dalton Trumbo said when he was able to drive onto the lot at Universal when they were shooting Spartacus, it was the first time he'd been allowed on a movie lot in a long, long time since the blacklist. But it was Otto who broke the blacklist and uh, Kirk Douglas who spread it farther apart and ultimately killed it. And uh, what about Preminger's own politics? You mentioned he was progressive. Did he, um, as an immigre from Austria, run into any problems at all with in, in terms of his personal politics? That I don't know. I'm sure some people might have tried to give him a hard time, but you try giving Otto Preminger a hard time sometime and see what happens. He was He, he helped to bring people over from Nazi-occupied Germany. He did everything he could, as Billy Wilder and other people did, too, as much as they could during those awful years. But primarily, he was a progressive political figure, and, and his films, I think, reflect that. Uh, he made a lot of duds later on. I mean, after uh, into the 60s and, and 70s, um, movies that didn't make money. How was he able to keep making films when he had flop after flop? Well, his last film was called The Human Factor, which many people said clearly was not autobiographical. 
He had a Tom Stoppard script, and he raised money for it. And then when the money fell through, he sold off his paintings. He sold his extra houses. He sold his possessions to try to pay people. He still wound up short and had to go to court. But he stepped up to the plate, and he really tried to pay off his debts. So he just finan- he put his own money into these films? When the backers pulled out, yes, yeah. he, he did. On, on, on the last film, at least, Rosebud was a film that was financed by United Artists. And when that was a dud, it really hurt him. That was the next to last, the penultimate film, but the last one, which I also cover in uh, Final Cuts, the last films of 50 Great Directors, which you had me on for a couple of yeah, years ago, yeah. um, Otto's last film. Now, uh, just real quickly, we're almost out of time, but why, why do you think uh, the later films didn't work? Like a lot of older directors' films, they simply ran out of energy to make them properly, and they also ran out of interest because the public had diverged at that time. We were very much a youth market, and Otto was no longer young. Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors, Nat Sagaloff, author of the book. Nat, always good to have you with us. Well, I'll, when I have another book out next month, yeah. I'll be back. Yeah, we look forward to you be a regular with us on Film Week. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. For our critics, I'm Larry Mant. We invite you, if you missed any of the reviews with our critics this week, please make sure to get the Film Week podcast wherever you get your audio. It's also available 24-7 at LAS.com. Have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.